Today we continue to look at Jesus and we see a story recorded in the eyewitness accounts of Jesus and Mark about weather. But it's a whole lot more than weather because this message speaks to the greatest question that I think all of us at some point in our faith walk ask. It's this question of God, where are you? Don't you care when we're going through storms? And not only that, but it, but it addresses one of the biggest fears we have in life. And we'll look at that as we go through. Lord, join me in prayer. Lord, we just ask today that your spirit would be with us. And that, Lord, as we speak even simple words uh, and think about different images, Lord, that you would bring into our mind uh, things that you want us to think about today. Things that you want to speak to us about. That this would become more than just words but it would become life because of your presence among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the context of this passage, this story, is Jesus has finished a really long, absolutely exhausting day of ministry. And he and his disciples in the evening, and his disciples, I'm sure, are exhausted as well, decide to get in the boat and cross. And the text actually reads, in the full text, it actually reads this way. It says, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. And a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Who is this? This big question we have to wrestle with. Even the wind and the waves obey him. This story is all about the power of Jesus. And as we look at today, we're going to look at it from several different angles about how this king of the kingdom demonstrates his power. We're going to talk about how his power is real. How his power is infinite. How as much as we kind of want it to be, but really wish it wasn't, his power is uncontrollable. And his power is costly. First, this story is about real world power. Three, four weeks ago, (coughs) pardon me, in another message, we talked about the fact that a lot of people approach the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as legends as things that the early church wrote as a way to promote their religion in the day. And we talked in that time, and I won't go into all of them. I'll just quickly review them and apply them specifically to this text today. We talked about at least three historical reasons why they can't be legends. And if you recall the first reason, the first reason was simply this. The gospel accounts, especially Mark, which was only written 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, At that time when it was written, there were still literally tens of thousands of people alive who had seen what had happened personally with Jesus. Therefore, it can't be legend because these Gospels are written too early. See, you can't establish legend when most of the eyewitnesses are still alive because there's far too many people who can raise their hand and say, I was there. It didn't happen, right? 
The second reason we talked about was that the gospel accounts are too detailed. And we talked about that in the context of, of literature. And we cited an ancient historian of ancient literature who basically said, there is nothing in all of literature like this kind of literature that has this level of detail up until the modern narrative realistic gospel or gospel novel was created about 200 years ago. This writing style didn't exist before that. Too detailed. So even look at this passage. It says they were leaving the crowd behind. Well, whoop-de-doo, so what? That has nothing to do with the message of of what he's trying to share in this story. And it says taking him just as he was. Well, that doesn't really add anything to the story either. Other boats were with him at first. That doesn't really add anything. And he was asleep in the back of the boat on a cushion, in the stern of the boat, on a cushion. All enormous level of detail that was didn't have any literary parallels in the day. And it just doesn't make sense that somebody would have created a new form of writing with no predecessors or no successors for another 2,000 years. And even on top of that, we talked about the fact that how many of you have had a really powerful, emotional or powerful experience Isn't it true that when you have a really powerful experience, don't you tend to get too detailed when you recount that? The details just get burned in your mind because of the experience and the amazing aspects of those experiences. See, the details here are actually proof that this is truly an eyewitness account. And then the third one, which is also illustrate, we can also illustrate from this passage, is that it can't be legend because the stories are too counterproductive to establishing a legend. In order to establish a legend, you have to be able to make some people worthy of of following. So look at this account. If this were legend and they were trying to establish the disciples' authority to be leaders of the new church, they wouldn't be talking about how fearful they are, what pansies they are. They wouldn't be talking like that because it doesn't help establish the legend. The Gospels and even this account here are truly eyewitness accounts of what actually happened in the real world, in real time, and in real history. You see, but we choose to a lot of times look at the Gospels and we hear this all the time. We hear it in the media. You hear it in interviews. You hear it in daily conversation with people about the Gospels. You hear people say... I really like some things about Jesus. I think he's really good in this area. I really like that. I'm not sure so sure about that piece of it. But wait a minute. If he's real, if this is real history, real time, real events, eyewitness things that are recorded about who he is, then we have to deal with the real Jesus as he is, not as we would like him to be. And if he is God, as he says he is, that takes it even one step further. We have to deal with him as things really are, with no negotiation. But we love to negotiate. The point of today is very simple. We could sum it up with this phrase. If we want a God who we can trust in the storms of our life, then we need to both know that this really happened. And we need to deal with this as though it really did happen in our own lives. And it forces us to deal with this question that we find at the end of the passage that the disciples ask, 
who is this? What does this mean for my life? Second, Jesus' power in this, in this is shown to be infinite. You see, the Sea of Galilee is, is 700 feet below sea level. And it's only a few short miles away, and you've got a 9,200-foot mountain called Mount Hermon. And, and the Sea of Galilee, because of the interplay of the climate and the geography and the winds coming off the mountains and going up the mountain, it's known for sudden, fierce storms. And if we look at this passage, we need to remind ourselves that the people in the boat with Jesus are all, almost to, almost to a fault, maybe one or two of them aren't, but almost all of them are experienced lifelong sailors who have been on the Sea of Galilee and they have experienced these fierce, sudden storms that came out of nowhere over and over again in their life. They are experienced people and yet the the term here used for this storm is in the Greek is is mega and we translate it that you know, we would translate the word for us. It's it's basically saying this is a mega storm. This is a, a hurricane like storm. And they're not coming to Jesus saying Hey, Jesus, would you mind waking up and helping bail some water out of here? Would you mind waking up because, you know, we're in a little bit of trouble here. We probably got it on our hand, but we might. No, they're coming to him. These experienced sailors are coming to him and saying, we're going to die. And you're sleeping in the back of the boat. What's the deal? I mean, picture the waves. Picture what's going on. Just to give you a little better picture, there was a, actually a boat, and I think we got some pictures of it on here. There was a boat discovered in an archaeological dig on the shores of Galilee in 1986. And from that, they were able to find enough information to reconstruct what the typical uh, fishing boat was. And it was approximately about 26 feet long, about 7 feet wide, about 3 feet deep. And it would hold about 13 to 15 people. And imagine as well, from history, we know that the worst storms on record in the Sea of Galilee will get 10-foot-plus waves. 1992, there were 10-foot-plus waves that crashed into the shore of Tiber- and damaged the town of Tiberias. I mean, these, these are big, big storms. And just picture this. There, there's, there's 13 guys, at least 12, 12 or 13 guys, bailing their hearts out, sitting in two to three feet of water, just barely any difference between their boat and the water outside as far as how low it is in the water now. And they're saying, you don't care if we drown. Jesus, you're sleeping. And Jesus awakes. And the amazing thing is the simplicity of his actions. He got up, he rebuked the wind, and he spoke to the waves. No long prayers, no magical incantations, no getting up, walking to the front of the boat, acting like George Washington, uh, you know, crossing the Delaware, puffing his chest out and going, now I'm going to show my power. Nothing big. I mean, it says he was exhausted. When's the last time you were exhausted enough to sleep through water splashing on you on a roller coaster ride, jerking you all around over these waves? I mean, he was exhausted. He was tired. And he got up and simply said this, Quiet, be still. Who knows, maybe it was quiet, be still, like I yell at my little frou-frou peek-a-poo dog when it's barking at the front door. I mean, it's, but it's that simple. It's something you'd yell at your dog. And of course, my dog always obeys me. It always stops barking when I yell at it. Angel, stop barking. 
It's really hard to yell at a dog named Angel. I don't know why my kids named it that. And then it says this. It says, then the wind died down. And the wind dying down could be a coincidence. I mean, come on. We've lived in the Midwest long enough. We've experienced those storms that go from raging wind to dead silent, although usually dead silent means the tornado's about to hit. But, I mean, you know, but you've experienced that, right? You've experienced just that big of a change in the, in the wind before. That could have been coincidence, but the text goes on to say, and we see the text use this word mega a second time, and it became completely calm. It became mega calm. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been on a lot of lakes. I've been around and seen oceans, and I've seen really big lakes. I've never seen one go from 10-foot waves to glassy still like that. Have you? Usually it takes hours, if not days, for it to calm down. From mega storm to mega calm. That's the power we're facing here. That's the power we're getting a glimpse of. And you see, this is a big deal. It's a big deal to us. It was a big deal back then as well because every single ancient culture that we're aware of through the study of history always symbolized the ultimate symbol of power. The ultimate symbol of the uncontrollable, infinite power of God was always the ocean, was always the sea. So we even see things like this guy named King Canute in the 11th century. He was a Christ-following king from a Danish king who ruled over England for a while. And at one point, a bunch of his followers were coming to him and saying, Man, you're a god! And he's a Christ follower going, I don't want to be called a god. I don't want to be a god. So the, as the story goes, he walks over the ocean with the big waves going on. And he stands, has all of his guys come and follow him. He goes, Be still! And nothing happened. So he turned around to his guys and said, See, I'm not a god. Now can we move on? And just went on. And we even see it back in Jesus' time. In about 170 years before Jesus was born, there was uh, this ruler called Antiochus Epiphany during the Maccabean Revolt. And Antiochus decided he was a god and said he could calm the seas. And everybody said, No, you can't. Therefore, you're not a god. And Jesus, in his simplicity of his approach to calming the storm and the dramatic the dramatic demonstration of power is saying to us, I am the power. I am God. And the whole universe, any power in all of the universe is simply on loan from me. And Jesus in this instance is... is It's really interesting because he pushes his disciples to the brink of destruction in the environment in which they were most accomplished. He pushes them to the brink of of destruction on the sea when they were sailors themselves. And then he says through his actions, this is who I am. What are you going to do with that? What does it mean for us? I mean, we could... Talk about what it means for us from maybe even just summarizing what Mark has told us about Jesus up till now. He starts out in chapter 1 talking about the kingdom is here. It's breaking in among us. Then we find out this king, this God, wants to be touchable. So touchable he comes to us as a baby. Comes God incarnate. He pursues us. He pursues relationship with us even when we don't want it. We see that all throughout chapter 2 and 3. But yet in that midst he's also demanding complete surrender. 
And then we see in chapter 4 that this God, this king of this kingdom invites us to live openly and deeply and letting the light in and, 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 and invites us to share the abundance he gives with others. Just simply share that light, share that seed to be about his mission of seeking and saving the lost. And now he just says to us, this king, me, I have the power to do anything I want. And the question we have to settle is, who is this? And how am I going to respond to that power, that kind of power? And it leaves us really with just two options. If he is real, if the story is real history, real time, real events, all we can do is surrender and give our all to him. If it's not real, then as philosophers and authors and poets and theologians have said throughout all of history and kings have said throughout all of history, if this is not real, then we might as well just live it up and go party and do whatever we want to and live however we want to and, I mean, do anything, whether it's killing people or whether it's drinking or just whatever we want to do, we should just do it because all we're going to be when life is over is fertilizer pushing up daisies. Real power, incomparable, infinite power. Third, we get to see this power as something that we sometimes wish that it wasn't, and it's uncontrollable. Picture the scene again. Just think about these disciples bobbing on these big waves. I mean, just terrified, realizing that they have finally met the perfect storm, and they're all going to die. Then everything goes calm instantly. And they're still sitting in two and a half, three feet of water inside their boat while it's just sitting there on a glassy sea. What's the emotional reaction we see in those disciples to being rescued? We actually get to see the third time this term mega is used in the text. They go from deathly terrified to mega terrified. Being rescued doesn't calm their fears. They go from terrified to just totally frozen in utter terror, mega terrified. Jesus answers and their fear intensifies. If we back up a second, think about the questions they're asking Jesus. Haven't we all been there? Haven't we all been there in our life? I don't know of anybody who's lived any kind of pursuit of faith in their life who's not asked these questions of the same questions when we've been facing sickness. Don't you, don't you care, Jesus, that someone is dying here? What's going on when we're facing financial problems? We'll go to God and we'll ask the questions. Don't, don't you care? I'm, I'm losing it. I'm going under. When we're dealing with marital or relational issues... Don't you care, Jesus, that things are unwinding, they're unraveling, and I feel out of control? I can't handle this pain? You see, every one of us has been where the disciples were that day. We've all felt the same thing. We've all asked the same thing. And likely will feel and ask those same things again at some point in our life. God, why are you asleep? Why are you not answering in my time of greatest need? Why don't you care? If you loved us, we wouldn't be going through and we fill in the blank. 
And what was Jesus' response to that? Well, if Jesus would have used all the good counseling skills we were taught in our seminary degrees and our counseling degrees, he would have said something like this. He would have gone, I am so sorry that you feel so abandoned and so hurt that I did not respond to you quick enough during your time of need. I never really wanted you to feel that way. I'm sorry. But Jesus doesn't follow Carl Rogers' advice or Larry Crabb's advice. He actually is a little more Dr. Phil in this moment. You know, Dr. Phil, you, you remember, you've heard him with all of his Texas colloquialisms. You couldn't be stupider if you were a dead rattlesnake, you know. And Jesus comes out and says to him, what? He says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith Wow. Really? But Jesus is simply and strongly saying this. He's saying to us, you're concerned that I'm not good. That I do not care for you because I allow you to go through a storm. I allow you to go through danger. And what he's saying is, your premise is wrong. Your premise is wrong. I do allow people I love to go through storms. You know, the disciples so, so outrageously, so mega afraid because, uh, I, think, I think they're so outrageously mega afraid because Jesus is, Jesus is just as unmanageable and uncontrollable as the storm. You can't control the storm and you can't control Jesus either by magical incantations that we sometimes call prayer. And you know what? I think when we step back from all this for a minute, we all realize life is a storm. It's easy for us in, in this instance to say, well, we've never faced anything that intense. We've never faced a near-death moment like out on the sea like this. and We've never faced that. Maybe some of you have. But... But the reality is that all of life is a storm. And when we step back, we, we realize that. Life is constantly beating against us. Relationships are constantly challenging us. It's a constant challenge of whether we're going to stay engaged or whether we're going to become disillusioned and hard. It's a constant challenge of whether we're going to live in forgiveness or whether we're not. It's a, it's a constant challenge physically. I mean, hey, you grow older. I used to run sub-seven-minute sub miles, you know, 30 years ago, and now I'm, I'm happy if I can get 10 minutes a mile or 11 minutes a mile. You know what I mean? And we know that life as a storm is going to get us at some point. We're all going to die. We're all going to get to the point where we can't run anymore. We're all going to get to the point where we can't do what we really want to do anymore. Life is a storm. And there's one clear difference between Jesus and the storm. The storm and Jesus are both uncontrollable. But the storm of life has no feeling for you. It has no heart towards you. It has no intent, good or bad, to you. It just is. And you can't control it. And Jesus is saying, I still love you in the storm. Can you trust me that I'm big enough, that I'm infinitely powerful enough, that I can have wisdom beyond yours, that even in the storm of life, I can still be 
good to you. See, Jesus is saying we're thinking wrongly about him. We can have peace. We can not be anxious or afraid, even in the midst of whatever storm we're facing. Why? Because we can trust him. We can trust this God who came to us to be infinitely close to us, to pursue us even when we didn't want to, and now proves that he is infinitely powerful, that he has the ability to control everything. We can trust him and have every reason to be able to trust him in the storms of life, even when we don't understand. And if you truly, he's saying to us, if you truly know me, if you deeply know me, You can be in the midst of a catastrophe and not be fearful, not doubt my goodness. That's hard, isn't it? It's a hard place to live, isn't it? You know, facing financial problems, facing job being potentially gone and all the concerns about that. Yet Jesus says in the midst of that, You can trust me for peace. You can even trust me for abundance in that. Who knows, if we tie this with our last week's message, maybe the reason the storm's going on is because there's still competing desires or there's still rocks under the surface that he's trying to get out to allow the depth of abundance and beauty that he wants to bring to us. But we can trust him in the storms of disease. We can still trust his goodness. And the fear can melt away. And that's what he's inviting us to. Job pressure, aging, strained, broken relationships. Even when it seems like he's asleep on the cushion in the back of the boat, not paying attention, not hearing, when our prayers seem like they're bouncing off a glass wall, we can trust him is what he's saying. See, life, life is an uncontrollable storm. We all have illusions from time to time, sometimes more often than others, that we can control it. But life is an uncontrollable storm. Jesus is an uncontrollable, infinite power. But he's filled with love and goodness towards us. I also find it interesting in this passage, you know, so often when you start thinking about the disciples in the Gospels, they do stupid stuff that we just laugh at and we go I can't believe you thought that I mean think about it I mean remember the story when they're feeding the 5,000 all the 5,000 people get fed by this miracle and Jesus then walks away and starts to talk to his disciples about this parable that he's trying to teach them about something else by using the term yeast and they keep going but Jesus what about the bread and they just can't get it and Jesus finally has to stop and say to them I'm not talking about the bread anymore you know, I mean, and we laugh at things like that. We see, we see, you know, Peter doing all sorts of stupid stuff in his, in his just his, his bravado type of a personality. And, but I think in this instance, we look at the disciples and I think that most of us can deeply relate to their fear, both before and even after the storm. Jesus in this story is showing us another beautiful side of God as well. God is so amazing. 
if you, if you really study the Bible all throughout, you see these parallels of stories reemerging. And, and some people would say, well, that could be just, that could be just, you know, coincidence and a proof of legend as well. But how do you make somebody's life in an uncontrollable world perfectly match something else? That just, that just doesn't make any sense. And in this instance, we see this amazing parallel between Jesus and a prophet 900 years before him, Jonah. Both of them end up in a storm, in a boat, asleep. People coming to him, begging him to wake up, and a solution being had. And Jesus ties this parallel even closer for us. In Matthew 12, he actually says of himself, I am the true Jonah. And what does, that, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? You see, Jesus calmed the wind and the waves and saved his disciples. And yet what Jesus is saying when I'm the true Jonah, not just a picture of the true Jonah, Jesus is saying, yet one day I'll calm all the storms. I'll stop all destruction. I'll heal all brokenness. In fact, I'm going to kill death. It's the ultimate promise of the kingdom. You see, on the cross, Jesus went into the ultimate storm. In fact, it's the one storm the only storm. We think there's a lot of storms in life that can sink us, but there's really only one storm in life that can sink us, and it's the storm of sin and death. And Jesus went head on into that storm on the cross for us to take that storm for us, to pay the price for our sins so that there would be no storm that could ever truly sink us. And to the degree that we see Jesus as the one who went into that ultimate storm for us, to the degree that we allow the reality of this account and the other accounts of Jesus taking the battle and fighting the battle and taking the abuse and all the stuff for us, to the degree that we see that, is the degree to which we will be able to experience peace in the midst of the storms in our life at a depth that sustains us in ways that we never dreamed possible. But see, our tendency, our tendency is to just ask the question over and over again, Lord, don't you know we're dying here? Why are you asleep in the back of the boat? And yet even when we go to Jesus entering that ultimate storm for us, beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus wrestling with the storm, and in the midst of the real storm, the one storm that could sink us all in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is saying to us, in a sense, you fell asleep on me. Remember that part of the Garden of Gethsemane? You fell asleep on me. You know, and we, I mean, come on, we all think about it, and we know we all fall asleep on him sometimes, don't we? We just decide something else is more important and we don't, we don't cultivate our relationship with Him, whatever that looks like, or we, we fall into sin because we allow ourselves to fall asleep and get sloppy and lazy or we, whatever. I mean, we can all admit to that. We can all own that, can't we? And yet, even though we accuse Him of not loving us when it seems that He is asleep, He's telling us in this story and all throughout the eyewitness accounts of Him, when you were asleep, when you were asleep on me, I still loved you. And I still am pursuing you. His power is real. His power is infinite. His power is uncontrollable. 
And his power cost him infinitely so that one day he could calm every storm of our lives. I think there's one other thing in here too. One of the most profound needs, I think, of our lives, in fact, maybe the most profound need of our lives, I think is illustrated in this passage. Because what this passage gets at for us is that I think if we really step back and admit it and examine it, we all want a Savior who's not a product of our desires. We need a Savior who isn't just going to insulate us in our lives and make everything safe and coddle us and give us all that we want all the time when we want it and make life easy and good. One of the main desires of our heart is for a Lord, for a Savior who's not a product of the desires of our own heart. And you see, the great irony of this is that if we create a Jesus who's not real, if we refuse to deal with him as real and these as eyewitness accounts of who he is, and we make up this Jesus for us, believing that Jesus is all about fulfilling everything we want, then he'll never fulfill us at the core of our being, of what we really need. You see, he can only fulfill you if you deal with him as the real Jesus, not the one we want him to be. He can only transform you if you believe in him in spite of the fact that he is not fulfilling all that you want at the time you want, and that instead you believe in him simply because he's true and he's good. He's not always safe. You can't control him. But he's always good. You see, a Jesus we make up can't comfort us when we're depressed. Because if we make him up, it's just our own mind telling us, telling ourselves a bunch of bunk. If we make him up uh, when we're depressed, Jesus can't come to us and say, I love you even in the storm. And it be real and powerful. I was sitting Thursday uh, evening. A lot of times I take my daughter to her swimming team meets at Capital, uses the Capital University, or Capital uh, Columbus Academy pool, sorry. And I'll sit there and I'll run and then I'll finish up messages. And I decided after I got done running that night to, to pull out and check Facebook and email quick on my phone. And I did. And I saw a really, really dear friend of mine who I'm looking forward to seeing in San Diego when I get to teach a, a seminar on the West Coast in June. Um, he had just posted something on Facebook. And I commented back because he just basically gave the close to the message. And here it is. He said this. When you can't figure out what God is doing, let me elaborate. When the storms of life and things are out of control and you just can't figure out where he's at and he feels like he's sleeping in the back of the boat, when you can't figure out what God is doing, go back and remember who he is. Go back and remember who he is. You see, we so often seek solutions to our circumstances, to the storms in our life by focusing on those circumstances and we get glued focusing on the storm in life. And God's inviting us to focus on him in a different way through this story. Think of these questions. What are, in the, what are the things in your life what are the things in your life that are just beaten up against you, that cause you to lose heart, 
What are the things in your life that consistently are coming back to you that sometimes you go, man, this is going to sink me someday. I'm not sure I can ever get over this. I'm not sure I can do that. I'd like you to take a moment to reflect on those answers, your own answers to those questions as you listen to this little short video that portrays Jesus speaking to us in the storm. You know, I sometimes think we respond to Jesus in statements like this where he says, you know what, where's your faith? Where's your faith? And I think we, we respond to this sometimes, we reel back from him. But what he's actually doing here is he's just calmed this storm. He's just saved their life. And these guys are terrified and he's saying, now, now will you trust my power? Now will you trust my goodness to come to you? Now will you trust me in the next storm you're in or the storm you're in now that's not finished? Because I love you this much. I don't know where you're at today. You may be facing a storm. You may be facing tension in relationships somewhere, whether it's marriage or family or a job. You may be facing the loss of a job. You may be facing financial pressure. I don't know what your storm is. Before you leave, would you respond to what Jesus is inviting you to, to instead of stay distant from him, to press in and come close? And I want you to respond this way. I want you to turn to a friend. Or if you don't have somebody you're comfortable praying with, come down afterwards and grab somebody after service. I want you to go to somebody and say, I need to press into God on this. Would you pray for me now? Would you respond to God that way? Um, On your way out as well today, we have a bunch of tables set up. We'd love to have you uh, get connected. If you don't know, if you're not connected, there's tables of small groups. There's tables of uh, fun groups out there that you could get connected with to make friends. We believe friendship is a huge, huge factor to your ability to follow God and have a great life. So we'd love to have you connect. Go grab some goodies. They're bribing you to come by. So grab one from every table and go home with lots of sugar. Have a great day. God bless.